Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is John Hilsenrath. He is a senior writer for the Wall Street Journal and the author of the new book, Yellen, the trailblazing economist who navigated an era of upheaval. John has been writing about economics and finance at the Wall Street Journal since 1997. He's worked as a writer and editor in Hong Kong, New York, and Washington, D.C. Many of his stories focus on the causes and consequences of economic and financial crises. He was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 2014 for his coverage of the Federal Reserve. He was part of the Wall Street Journal team that was a Pulitzer finalist in 2009 for coverage of the financial crisis. And he contributed to the -the on-the-ground reporting to the Wall Street Journal's 9-11 coverage, which won a Pulitzer in 2002. He's a graduate from Duke University and was a Knight Badgett Fellow and an MBA graduate from Columbia Business School. I really enjoyed this conversation with John, and I think you will too. John Hilsenrath, senior writer for the Wall Street Journal and the author of the new book, Yellen, the trailblazing economist who navigated an era of upheaval. Welcome to the show. It is so great to have you on. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to having the conversation and putting aside our Duke versus UNC rivalry and like just trying to get along for a little while. I think while. we have more in common <laughs> than you might think. Um, and I'm actually probably wearing more of a Duke blue today, but you know. Okay. All right. That's good. Um, John, I want to kind of start uh, just kind of from the lens of being a reporter and, you know, looking at a story and what makes for a great story and um, how you kind of came about wanting to write this book about uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. What was it for you uh, from the story perspective? Um, Well, so the idea for the, the book actually came into my head, as many good ideas do in the shower. Um, so, uh, like, I, I decided to write it shortly after uh, President-elect Biden uh, nominated her to be Treasury Secretary. And I was like, all right, like, she's clearly a, a, an important historical figure. She first woman to be Treasury Secretary, first woman to be Fed chair. Um, but the question for me was, well, how do you tell the story? And what occurred to me was that actually there was a love story that made this uh, a story worth reading. Uh, And and that's the story about Janet Yellen and her husband, George Akerlof, who won a Nobel Prize in economics himself. And between the two of them, they forged a really interesting partnership just as a family, Uh, but but also between his Nobel Prize and all the senior jobs that she held as an economic policymaker, I realized I could really tell the story of modern economics itself, because the two of them have been in the middle of almost every major economic debate of the last of the last 50 years. So I kind of felt like through their own love story, um, I could tell a bigger story about economic upheaval. Yeah, uh, I think that is that is certainly true, um, because there is a lot of like economic history, financial history uh, threaded throughout the book. And um Great shower thoughts, I suppose, uh, for coming up with the angle. Well, you know, the, the book was originally titled Janet and George. Uh, really? okay. And then we did. Yeah, we did. We decided uh, that, you know, we wanted to shine a little bit more of a light on her. But I think in, in reading it, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've seen there's mm-hmm. just there's a lot there about the two of them and, and about the duo uh, and what they've been through. Agreed. Yeah, there's a, certainly a lot because, yeah, you're right. Janet and George would have uh, worked from a title perspective because you do go deep into his background as well. Um, and then when you talk about love story, 
it brings up this kind of idea that Warren Buffett also talks about, which is the most important decision you make is who you choose to be your partner and your life partner. And um, I think it says a lot about, you know, how um, you can attain success together through that partnership. Talk to me a bit more about the learnings that you gleaned um, from telling the story of their relationship. Well, I mean, I'm so happy to hear that that anecdote. I hadn't realized that Warren Buffett had said that. And and that's actually, you know, I've said in in looking at Janet Yellen and how she broke all the glass ceilings that she did, I came away with four lessons for, for breaking glass ceilings. Um, and one of those four lessons was choose good partners uh, because her partner, George Akeloff, became an important research partner for her. Uh, but also an important life partner uh, who helped her manage family, work, and career. Um, the other life career lessons I take for breaking uh, glass ceilings, one is do your homework. You know, Janet Yellen uh, came from a family with a very demanding mother uh, who pushed uh, her and her older brother, John, very hard when there were little kids growing up in Brooklyn to get their homework done. You know, they had to show their mom that their homework was complete every night. But not only what did it have to be complete, it had it, it had to be correct. Mom wouldn't let them turn in homework with mistakes on it. And to this day, Janet Yellen is kind of known in Washington policy circles as the person who is prepared for every meeting. She gets briefing books from her staff uh, as treasury secretary, 300 pages long on a Friday night She'll come back Monday morning, having read the briefing book and asking questions. Um, you know, an, another lesson, I've got four of these lessons. Another one is kind of to take the Sheryl Stanberg saying and stretch it is lean in when it matters. So as I lay out in the book, Yellen, um, she could really pound the table, uh, particularly when she was at the Fed and there were these intense debates about whether the Fed should be lowering interest rates and launching new bond buying programs to help the economy. And she pushed her colleagues really hard uh, to, to advance these programs. And she could be a pretty demanding character, but behind the scenes, um, she, she wasn't a, a difficult person to get along with. She didn't lean in just for the sake of leaning in. She was known by her colleagues as the person who'd be happy to go out and throw down a martini after work or have a laugh. Um, she only leaned in, uh, so to speak, when she felt like she had something that people really need to listen to. And then the final of the four lessons is um, to have a purpose. So uh, she and her husband, George, uh, saw their kind of life's journey as kind of being like lighthouse keepers in the sense that um, they actually watched a movie about Japanese lighthouse keepers years ago, and they were, and they thought they said to each other, "That's kind of like our lives in the sense that they thought they had some higher purpose, and in, in their case, the higher purpose was uh, to try to use economics to improve the welfare of, of people. They saw economics as not just a bunch of math and uh, supply and demand curves, and um, you know she didn't set out to get great jobs. She just set out to get her economics right. Now, she didn't always get her economics right, as we know from the inflation episode we lived through in 2022. But it, it, for, for her, it was really the higher, the, the, the purpose of just doing a good job that mattered more to her than uh, building up her resume. Yeah, I think um, 
there are many things that stand out. So like uh, you just mentioned the four four lessons. I don't want to spoil the book for folks, but like there's surprising stories of like, you know, um, her husband, George, was taking care of the son um, when he had yeah. like a he, his I guess a back injury at the time or, um, you know, little things like that, or like the, her mother, uh, would correct even her and her brother's like letters home from college, like correct the grammar or something, things like that. Um, so do the, do your homework part. Um, and you were mentioning kind of having that purpose, uh, the lighthouse keepers. And, um, I think what I found really interesting is it's really a book too about like a bit of like the human condition too of like, you know, right. not everyone's perfect. Uh, people make mistakes and you were kind of um, just bringing up the inflation episode of late. So let's like explore yeah. that a bit. Um, you know, what were the things that she got right uh, that are noteworthy and what are the things that she got wrong that, um, you know, probably folks will still remember or look back on? Well, let's start on the, on the wrong part, um, and that is that is the inflation that we lived through in 2022. Um, uh, it, it's pretty apparent at this point that not just Janet Yellen, but policymakers in Washington in general made a mistake in the sense that they threw too much stimulus at the economy uh, during and after the COVID episode. Um, the Federal Reserve pushed interest rates to zero, launched new bond buying programs, expanded their their portfolio of securities to over nine trillion dollars. Uh, and then, you know, first the Trump administration and then the Biden administration on top of it uh, pumped almost six trillion dollars of stimulus into the economy in the form of relief checks to households, uh, relief programs uh, to small businesses, uh, rental moratoriums, student loan debt payment suspensions, and it just flooded the economy with money and it flooded households with spending power at a time when the supply chains, uh, global supply chains weren't working properly and we had too much demand and too little supply and you get higher prices when that happens and and that happened. Um, You know, I, I think that the question is, why did that happen? And I think in Yellen's mind, I retrace this in the inflation chapter. She was really preoccupied with what happened after the financial crisis of 2007, 2008. We entered a long period of high unemployment after that, very slow growth, and a long period in which inflation was exceptionally low. It was below the Fed's 2% target for a decade. And I think that was the the framework that she used to analyze what was going to happen after COVID, and it was the wrong framework, um, and uh, it it was it was really a misjudgment. It was there's this idea in psychology called recency bias that the idea that people tend to um, refer to their most recent experiences when they make judgments about the present and the future, and there was a lot of recency bias in the economics profession in which they looked at the post. 2008 financial crisis, and they drew their lessons for the post-COVID period from that. And she did that. I think, you know, if you want to look at her successes, um, you know, she really stands out in that post-2008 period because a lot of people were attacking and criticizing the Fed, saying that it was going to cause a new bubble, that it was going to cause inflation, cause a collapse of the dollar uh, with its policies after 2008. And, you know, I think most of the research would indicate right now that those policies um, uh, did more good than they did harm. 
uh, there were more benefits than there were costs. Uh, you know, we, we, it did. They they did lead us to a period by 2019 of pretty low unemployment and prosperity. Uh, the problem is they misapplied. They took the medicine from that post 08 period and they applied it to the post COVID period. It was kind of like saying, well, chemotherapy worked for a cancer patient. You know, let's try it on somebody who has diabetes. Uh, and it was just the wrong medicine for the, for, for that element. Yeah. The wrong medicine. Um, let me ask you this too, cause, um, I did not know this until I read your book. Um, Larry Summers, also former Treasury Secretary, was uh, one of uh, Yellen's students uh, in a, mac yeah. I think, macroeconomics. Um, uh, actually, I think she had a lot of like influential uh, students, like pretty big names over the years. But, um, you know, yeah. Larry Summers was one of the folks who was, you know, critical of the policies. And, um, you know, I think he'd been calling for that we were going to have inflation wasn't going to be uh, transitory. Um, what can you tell us about that relationship? Uh, I don't, I, I suppose they were probably communicating uh, during uh, this time period. What can you yeah. uh, share about? It's a, it's, it's a really interesting and complicated relationship. And Larry Summers is a very interesting and complicated person. You know, he's rubbed a lot of people the wrong way in his career. Uh, as, as president of, of Harvard, he ended up losing his job uh, because he alienated a lot of faculty. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I try to do in, in the book is kind of humanize these people. You know, we, we see them on CNBC and Bloomberg and Fox Business every day, kind of navigating this economy. And what I try to do is, you know, just kind of open the door and kind of describe and show who these people are that have been at the center of so many really kind of monumental economic events in the last 20, 30 years. Now, the relationship between Yellen and Summers is very interesting because in 2013, there was uh, Barack Obama, then president, was making a decision about who should lead the Fed after Ben Bernanke uh, departed the scene. And his decision came down to uh, Larry Summers or Janet Yellen. And uh Obama had promised Summers the job uh, earlier uh, in, in, two, in 2010 and then ended up giving it to re-upping Bernanke and kind of let Summers down. He kind of wanted Summers to have a chance at it again in 2014. And there was so much resistance on Capitol Hill, particularly on the left, uh, that Obama felt like he couldn't get the votes and um, he went with, with Yellen instead. And, you know, I think out of that episode, a lot of people came away with the view that these people, that Janet Yellen and Larry Summers didn't really like each other, that they had a rivalry. And really, it's more like kind of two um, siblings who've known each other for many years and uh, kind of respect and tolerate each other for all their kind of foibles. Um, and you're right. Uh uh, Yellen was talking to Summers quite often uh, in the early months of her um, term as Treasury Secretary. And, you know, he Summers told her he's not a shy person about expressing his opinion that he thought they were doing too much. Um, Yellen had some sympathy for her argument, but because she was kind of uh, 
driven so much by the post-financial crisis period, she kind of underestimated the arguments that Summers was making. And, uh, you know, she was also kind of late to the Biden administration. She didn't campaign for him. She was retired. Uh, he kind of brought her into the administration um, after he was elected. And there was there was a desire uh, on his transition team to have a steadying hand and a steadying voice as the top economic policymaker. So they turned to her. But she wasn't she was in a tough spot in terms of trying to contradict the president on the promises he had made for more stimulus. And then she so she kind of blessed it. And now it's a stain on her record. I got it. Yeah, you could be in a, a tough spot, I suppose, when you have an, a, an administrative I mean, a role in the administration. Um, you mentioned she's kind of late to the administration. Did and she didn't campaign for the job. Did, did she want the job as Treasury Secretary? No, uh, no. She turned it down, actually. Uh, uh, some of Biden's emissaries after his election on his transition team came and asked her if she was interested. And she said, no, not really. You know, um, <laughs> Janet Yellen liked to go to bed early. She liked to go to bed at like eight thirty, nine 9 o'clock at night and get up early. And uh, she was enjoying retirement. She was also making a decent amount of money in retirement, um, uh, doing kind of speaking at financial events. And um she didn't want the job, uh, and and then uh, they the the transition team reapproached her and asked her if she would reconsider it. And Yellen sat, you know, stood in her kitchen with her husband George and her son Robbie, who were like the kind of central forces in her life. And they 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 discussed it, and they felt like you know what, she has a duty to take the job if the president of the United States asks her in the middle of a COVID crisis and an economic crisis and. They want her in the job. They felt she had a duty, and so she decided to take it. And it's interesting because, like, almost immediately upon becoming Treasury Secretary, rumors started floating around Washington that she would be gone by the midterms, that she didn't get along with people in the White House, that they had kind of personal and philosophical disconnects. And there have been all these stories floating around Washington's gossip channels uh, for months that she was going to be one of the first people to leave the administration, but she's kind of found her footing. Um, and when I talked to her uh, shortly before the midterm, she said she had no desire or intention to leave. She planned to stick around for the foreseeable future. So like her or dislike her, uh, she's going to be the Treasury Secretary for a little while longer, I suspect. Yeah. Um, you also talk about um, humanizing these folks. And I think that was an interesting right. way of putting it, um, humanizing a lot of these figures that we know um, from economics, finance. Um, and there are some kind of interesting ones, you know, uh, I, I'll bring this example up with you. Um, Janet Yellen's approach to an airport yeah. versus Larry Summers' approach to an airport. Can you share what those are for the folks watching and listening? And the follow on is, which one are you when it comes to an airport? Oh, wow. I'll all tell right. you who okay. I am. All right. Okay. Um, so, uh, all right. So there, I'll tell the airport stories and, and, and also kind of the broader significance of it. Uh, and, and the kind of point about humanizing these people. So, um, th these are two people, Janet Yellen, uh, Larry Summers, who were trained economists, right? So they were two people who were trained formally that the 
uh, the, the way to approach problems is to kind of maximize your utility, right? And so here's an issue of when do you leave for the airport? And these are two people who had completely different views of what it was that they were trying to maximize or minimize or to manage efficiently. So Yellen's view was that, uh, you know, she wanted to minimize the possibility of disruption in her life. She didn't want to miss any planes. Uh, she's not the most athletic human in the world. She didn't want to be running from uh, security to the gate. Um, she liked to get, she's kind of short. She liked to get good overhead uh, compartment space. And so she leaves three hours uh, early for the airport because she wants to be the first person at the gate. And her attitude is, you know, I could, I've got a lot of reading to do always. I could sit at the gate and do my reading. And I want to minimize my chances of missing my plane. Larry Summers had the exact opposite point of view. His view was that he didn't like spending time in airports. He found time in airports to be annoying and wasteful. And so his view was that he wanted to minimize the amount of time that he had to sit around waiting at some gate uh, for his next plane. And his view is that if you've never missed a plane, then you're spending too much time in his airport. So he was always the last, you know, always the one running for the gate at the last second uh, with his shirt untucked and his bags flying everywhere uh, uh, to, to, to be that last person to board. So like, so these are two brilliant people who have completely different views of what it is they're trying to maximize and minimize. And that's kind of what I mean about humanizing uh, the economics. Uh, you know, there's this idea, I think, there has been in markets uh, for decades that, and in economics, that markets are efficient, right? That ma markets do this kind of elegant job of kind of sorting through all the information available to people and you know, finding the perfect level of supply and the perfect level of demand and the, and the most efficient price at which stocks should clear or oranges and apples should clear. And you know, the view of George Akerlof, Janet Yellen's husband, is that like markets just don't work that way uh, because what's what happens inside markets is the people making these decisions are human beings, and humans have much different kind of views of the world, and they have. Uh, emotions that 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 um, drive their behavior and sometimes in very irrational ways. And so the economics profession over the last 20, 30 years has spent a lot of time coming to the grips with that. The idea that humans could be irrational, markets could be inefficient, human behavior can be kind of bizarre, idiosyncratic and inefficient. And that's been an important lesson for people to learn. And one of the important lessons that comes, I think, from my book, from tracking the policy decisions that these folks in Washington make is that, guess what? The policymakers are human too. And a lot of the mistakes that we see happening in markets where, you know, uh, investors get over-enthusiastic about some idea or overshoot or they become greedy, uh, the, the policymakers are prone to the exact same problems. And that we have these two underneath this uh, system that we have in the United States of, you know, uh, market-driven, de democratic, government-driven um, democracy, capitalist-driven democracy, 
underneath kind of the, 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 this constant push and pull between government and markets are human beings uh, who often mess things up. And I think, you know, for me, it informs these debates that we have. Uh, people tend to see these debates as, you know, Republicans versus Democrats, too much government, too much market. Um, uh, they see them in, in really binary ways and almost kind of two-dimensional comic book ways. And, and, and my view from doing the work on this book is that we, we have these two systems, capitalism and democracy, that are really imperfect, but they're the best of two imperfect worlds. The alternatives uh, are, you know, look at a place like Russia, look at a place like China, you know, where, you know, either government, you know, democracy is squeezed or markets are squeezed and you have people living uh, under very unpleasant conditions. So, you know, I think on both the right of the political spectrum and the left of the political spectrum, it helps to remember that, um, we have to keep working at improving both sides, the government side and the market sides, because, you know, humans are in both and they screw up uh, on both sides of the equation. Yeah. Um, humans are in both. And they screw up. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this. So Janet Yellen, she has served as chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, Federal Reserve Chair and Treasury Secretary, the three top positions basically in for, for anyone in that field, in economics, like definitely trailblazer holding those roles. Yeah. What do you want the folks who read your book uh, to take away? Like, what are the things that you want them to take away from reading about Yellen? Oh, wow. Uh, that's, um, that's a big question and it's a good question. You know, so I would say, um, the, I mean, the, 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 the the argument I was just making, I think, is one of my big takeaways, um, which is which is that, you know, kind of I've lived and worked in Washington for the last 10 years and been in the middle of these ideological wars. And, you know, I think it's important for people to remember that um, that the 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 markets and, and, and the government are these imperfect systems and they need to be we need to constantly be working at them. And if we're not working at improving the, the institutions that kind of manage both systems. And by, by that, I mean, you know, our electoral systems, our elections, the media, uh, banks, regulators, all these elites that people are so frustrated with. If we're not kind of constantly focused on, um, on building trust in these institutions, then we run the risk of going the way of China and Russia. And I spent a lot of time kind of documenting some of that stuff in the book. In terms of Janet Yellen herself, you know, in my mind, Yellen is the kind of main character in this much broader story that I'm talking about. Um, in terms of Yellen herself, I would say that the main takeaways, first of all, uh, is that uh, you can learn lessons, whether you're a male or a female, you can learn lessons about not just work, but also family by looking at the journey that she and George Akeloff travel together about balancing work and family, about being supportive partners for each other, about two people being supportive partners for each other. Um, you know, and also about uh, choosing some endeavor in your life that for which you feel like you have a higher purpose 
that, you know, it's not just about kind of burnishing your resume, but you feel like you're doing something of some greater value. And that that's kind of what drove Janet Yellen and George Akerlof into, into economics for better or worse. And I think it led them to become two people uh, who in their own views uh, ha- have had pretty fulfilling journey as partners to each other, but also in the work that they've done. Yeah. Um, you brought up something that just kind of made, made me want to ask Fallon. You talked about, um, you know, the importance of focusing on building trust in institutions. Yeah. Do you, what do you think of like the state of institutions and trust in institutions? Do you see it deteriorating, growing? Like what is kind of your assessment it's a mess. And I think it's 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 in a terrible state. And I think that it's one of the biggest threats that we have uh, in the United States today uh, to, to both. It's an economic threat and it's and it's a political threat. I mean, you know, so so I spent a lot of time in the book and I spent a lot of time in my career kind of documenting the, the financial crisis of 2008 and, and what happened after that. And I also spent a lot of time in, in the book documenting, you know, the rise of China as a world trading power and the effects that China had on um, communities in the United States, like Hickory, North Carolina, which was a furniture manufacturing uh, capital of the United States that got decimated by imports from China. Um, a lot of people have come through the last 20 years of economic turbulence uh with less trust in the elites of this country and by the elites i mean uh the policymakers in washington the leaders of both parties uh the banks that run wall street and also journalists people like me um people at the big news organizations the big media companies uh you know a lot of people feel like they uh were um Kind of handed a bargain that didn't work for them. When I say a lot of people, I say a lot of a lot of Americans. And as a result, trust in institutions like the media, like the government, like the Federal Reserve, like the Treasury, like the banks that the Fed bailed out in 2008, um, they're dealing now with distrust, which helps to explain, you know, why Donald Trump had such a powerful message in 2016, uh, why Bernie Sanders has had such a powerful message. And I, you know, I think, you know, what this is, you asked me what I kind of wanted to do with this book. I think another thing that I, that I, a message that I hope gets through is that, you know, for anyone reading this book, who's kind of working in these elites uh, or aspires to, you have to think really hard and carefully about, you know, are you doing, are you working to kind of build the trust of, um, the people that you say you're serving, whether you're a CEO of a bank who has customers with their money on the line or a politician with a constituency uh, that voted for you or a journalist with, uh, you know, with, with a following or do, do people trust you? Because if they don't, it kind of it undermines the workings of markets and democracy. And I think we've seen that come to fruition. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Yellen is an interesting person to examine these issues through because for the most part, whether you agree or disagree with her policies, 
she's made some mistakes. She's made some good calls and she's made some bad calls. I don't think anybody kind of really challenges her, her intentions. Um, you know, she, she seems at the bottom line to be a pretty dedicated and loyal civil servant. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree with you on the assessment of trust being, uh, a mess. So I guess a, a follow on, like, if your view is there, do you, are you hopeful for the future? Do you think that it can be repaired or restored? Or do you think this is something we're just going to deal with? Like, a you know, distrust in institutions that this mess is going to be more persistent? Well, I mean, I think if the leaders of the institutions are paying attention, they will get to work on on re rebuilding and restoring this trust. Um, fundamentally, I'm an optimistic person, uh, and, and I should say I'm an optimistic American. I'm the uh, child of a of a of a war refugee who came here with nothing and managed to build a great life. And I look out today at what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, you know, so the kind of long narrative arc of this story is that at the end of the 1990s, the United States kind of felt like we had figured out this model for governance that the rest of the world was going to build on and follow. Right. And this brings me back to the idea of democratic um, market driven capitalism. So uh, that we had markets that worked and were efficient and with, with the involvement of a kind of small but um, but functioning government, uh, we can increase prosperity for everybody. And, you know, the, the Soviet Union collapsed, the Berlin Wall collapsed. We tried to bring Russia into the system. Uh, the Chinese made a conscious decision to make to be a part of global markets. And we tried to bring them into this system. And in, in, in many ways, our efforts actually were, when I say, yeah, the United States efforts were the greatest poverty reducing program in human history, you know, like more than 700 million Chinese people escaped poverty when they became part of a global trading system that the United States led, right? And so there was a lot of optimism at the end of the 1990s that this was all going to work. And what we discovered in the last 20 years was that it was hard. It was hard to make these things work, that bringing all these trading partners into the system actually hurt a lot of Americans. Um, that, uh, you know, the Chinese didn't always play by the rules, which created a lot of resentment. And then kind of like almost shockingly, uh, 20 years down the road, the, the Russians and the Chinese today are saying that they don't really buy into the system that we kind of invited them into. And they're moving towards more authoritarian systems. But what's going to win out in the end? Well, uh, so... COVID, I think, is a really good example of who wins out in the end. The United States has an open system that can be a total and utter mess at times, but the United States developed vaccines uh, that have kind of worked and helped the country to reopen and get the economy going again. In 2022, the Chinese are still locking down their 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 own people because they're uh, because they haven't developed vaccines that are working very well and because they're afraid of uh, not only the spread of, uh, of COVID, but of the risk that their own people are going to kind of rise up against um, and, and destabilize their system. So, you know, I, this is a long winded way of saying, I think the American system for all its flaws and failures and human foibles is still the best system out there. And um, 
you know, it's it's kind of hard not to be hopeful that we're going to find a way to figure it out. Um, but uh, as is often the case in this country, we, we, we t- you know, it, it can be really that journey can be really messy. And there's a lot there's a lot of work to do today. Yeah, I, I sense the optimism in um, that America is the best system out there. Um, you mentioned um, I want I want to kind of like get folks to get to know you a bit better. And, and um, you mentioned um that you're the son of a war refugee. And I don't know if you want to go yeah. into it, but um, if you'd be willing to like share a bit more and, you know, how, you know, that has shaped you um, having a parent who has, you know, come to this country um, as a war refugee and how that kind of shaped who you are as a person. Sure. Um, so I appreciate you asking. I've written about this in the Wall Street Journal. It's it's pretty topical today. So um my dad was born in uh, Germany in 1930 uh, and um, was smuggled out of the country uh, alone in 1938 after the rise of Hitler. Um, we're Jewish. And uh, he was sent off to France, lived as an orphan in France for three years during World War II. And it's a long story, but eventually through the heroics and goodwill of a lot of people, his family was reunited in the United States in 1941. And they were penniless. They had nothing. My grandfather uh, escaped himself, uh, found his children uh, in orphanages and kind of made ends meet in the streets of Washington, D.C., selling eggs in the street uh, from the trunk of his car. They had nothing. And, um, uh, you know, my, my, my dad put himself through school, uh, opened a grocery store, put himself through school at night, uh, applied to medical school kind of later in life and had a really kind of miraculous career as a cardiologist, discovering all these new um, technologies that kind of saved and prolonged human lives. And it's just impossible for me as the son of someone who went through that um to not believe that the United States and the people here, including the new generation of immigrants who are coming, you know, uh, don't have a bright future. Uh, it's just hard to have kind of heard those stories and seen the fruits of my dad's hard work, not to not to believe it myself and not to want to be kind of some part of uh, of of, you know, kind of, keeping keeping the country strong so i you know it's it's actually it's interesting but so you know so my way of doing that was was to become a journalist and then i've kind of lived through this period where a lot of americans distrust journalists and and a lot of americans think that you know we're part of the problem and not a part of the solution there's kind of there's a lot of um kind of soul searching that goes into kind of thinking about what you're doing and trying to make sure you're doing it right when you got into it, you know, kind of thinking when it was part of the greater good. And then, you know, you got people saying now, you know, you guys are biased and you're part of the problem. Yeah. Let me ask you a follow on to that um, because I'm, I'm now independent. I host my own podcast, but there was a point too, where it was like, I guess when I first started, I was like so proud to be like, I'm a journalist, you know, I won't tell people I'm a journalist and then, you know, things change. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, what is it like to, in the recent, more recent times, like, um, you know, to, to say I'm a journalist, uh, do you, 
do you feel proud when you say it? Or is it like more, do you feel hesitant? Or maybe it's a totally irrelevant question. I'm just curious, like how other folks No, feel. I think it's, I think it's a great question. Um, and it, it, I mean, it's something I've thought about a lot. Um, I, I think, I mean, I still think that what we do uh, or, or what, like, I can't speak for all journalists, uh, what what kind of, what I've learned to to try to do with the Wall Street Journal, the value system that we've got of trying to kind of tell truthful, honest stories, to try to get to our readers closer to the truth. We can't always perfectly get our readers to the truth, but to try to get them closer on on, on issues that matter to them, and to do it without favor for or against any side. I mean, I think that's more important. Um, that than ever, uh, but you know, I also kind of have to understand that there are a lot of people out there who are su- suspicious of what we do, and in a lot of cases, that that suspicion is warranted. You know, uh, if if you look at not to take a shot at cable television, but I'm going to if you like if you look at cable television, you know, it's a really polarized world, and you know, a lot of people will kind of gravitate to uh, the, 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 what's the word? Uh, the, the reporters or the anchors or the storytellers who just kind of reaffirm whatever it is they want to hear or whatever they want to believe. So, uh, you know, that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, I, I kind of understand that, you know, journalists are not held in the highest regard these days, and it's part of my job to, like everybody else's, to to kind of win people's trust and by by just trying to do a straight job and and a good job. And I'm not always perfect at it, but it's kind of the value system that I think I have to have to live by. And um, you know, so as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, we, like we get feedback from readers all the time, challenging our assumptions. Uh, challenging our, uh, our, our, our biases. And, uh, and, you know, I, I've got to listen to that stuff and, and, and take it in and kind of internalize it. And, you know, sometimes it's a little frustrating. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you experienced some of this too. Uh, we don't live in the most like civil of discourse, uh, era of great civil discourse, but, uh, but you got to listen to what 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 people are saying. So, um, you know, the, the era when like journalists were seen as these kind of uh, heroic Woodward and Bernstein type figures, I think is it's it's long gone. And I, I think like just anyone who gets into this or, or any other kind of position on a public stage uh, just has to be having their mind that that uh, uh you got to you got to earn the trust of your audience every single day. Yeah, I think maybe it goes back to the broader theme of like building trust, earning trust. Um, yeah, maybe on a bit of a lighter um, note too, because um, you went to Duke, I went to Carolina, but we have one thing in common, and we both. This is my only C in college, by the way. Not not bragging, but I got a C in Econ one hundred and one. Yeah, there you go. and so did you, and so it made me yes. feel pretty good about myself knowing that you could go huh. on and have this incredible career at the Wall Street Journal. Um, you just got to yeah, reshare. Yeah, I like, guess I take it as a little bit of badge of honor, but, you know, we're in good company because not only did you and I have our misfortunes in economics, but 
So did Janet Yellen's Nobel Prize winning husband, George Akerlof. As I tell in the book, uh, he took intro to economics. He went to, you know, he went to a school that wasn't quite as respected as UNC or Duke. He went to a place in the Northeast called Yale. And in his intro uh, to economics course, his professor asked him to go to the chalkboard and draw a demand curve. And then when you drive a demand curve, it's supposed to go down because uh, the, the the more you increase the price, the, the, the lower the demand gets. And he drew his demand curve up. And, uh, you know, so he was kind of humiliated in his first class. He went on to win a Nobel Prize in economics. My own story was... Um, what, what was also, uh, well, may, maybe even kind of more humbling. I, but you, you're going to have to explain to me how you got your seat. My classes met on Tuesday and Thursday mornings, early in the morning on uh, at eight o'clock. And um, frankly, I just, I, the, the, uh, I found the economics that was being taught to me in the classrooms to be really abstract, you know a lot of theory about where these how these demand and supply curves moved and what moved up and what moved down and where the price went and it didn't it just wasn't real to me i didn't discover until i actually accidentally became an economics writer that like there's just a real world of really interesting kind of humans and history underneath those uh those abstractions that i wanted to write about so anyway so uh, let's just say I slept through my share of Econ 101 courses and I walked away with a C. And uh, frankly, I was grateful it wasn't worse than that. Oh. What about you? I had, the eight, I had the 8 a.m. I actually went to class. I sat in the front row. The professor even remembered it after I told him. I said, I got a C in your class. Um, and he's like, I remember you sat in the front row. It was like after I graduated. Um, I think my, it, my challenge was, like you just said, it it just didn't feel real. Like I needed the kind of human story to go along with it. And it was, um, I have, I think if I went back now, I, I would probably do not, I don't know. I think I would have, I would enjoy it so much more if I went back or maybe economics classes need to change the curriculum a bit just to make it more, you know, real and understandable. Just cause I always yeah. thought, am I really going to need this in my life? And then it's like, Oh, actually all around us. Well, so my, my question wasn't, am I going to lead this? My question was, what are these people talking about? I can't make sense out of it. And and uh, just to kind of bring it back in a kind of self-promotional way to my book, that's kind of one of the things I was trying to do with this book was kind of tell these stories and explain economics in ways that are kind of that, that are understandable, um, that that, uh, you know, that um, that my aunt Susan can can grasp and make sense of to kind of um, describe them as part of a larger human drama, and to describe the comment the 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 the, the concepts behind it uh, in the context of actual events like a financial crisis that nearly drove us into a great depression or a health crisis that led to the worst outbreak of inflation in decades. Um, you know, to kind of describe those events in ways that kind of people can touch and feel and kind of see at their kitchen table. Yeah. I have one more question for you, and it might annoy you that I'm going to ask it. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Um, it's just something I've been curious about. So when 
during your time at the Wall Street Journal, you were called the Fed Whisperer. How does mm. one become, I don't know if you can even say, um, how does one become the Fed Whisperer? Or what do you think of that title? Because th- there's a new Fed Whisperer now at the Wall Street yeah. Journal. And you know who I'm talking about, but um, yeah. Nick Yeah, my colleague, my colleague, Nick Timrose. So, all right. So uh, I'll give you an honest answer to the question. I'm glad, I guess, maybe that you asked it. But um, I hated the term. I really hated the term because I, in, in my mind, you know, I'm a reporter. I'm a journalist. And I, I said this on a Rick Santelli episode that you wrote up. You know, in my mind, I had three responsibilities as a reporter covering the Fed and as any reporter at the Wall Street Journal has covering any institution. My three jobs were a uh, to break news. You know, we are the Wall Street Journal. Our, our readers care a lot about what the Fed is doing. And so you know, we invest resources and a lot of attention into making sure that we know what the Fed is doing. Our other job is to explain a complicated world, and the, the world of central banking is very complicated. So I was always trying to do that. And then a the third job is to hold people in power accountable. And so that's how I saw my job. I, I didn't see my job as like someone who was like trying to become a Fed whisperer, and I thought it was important. To hold the Fed accountable, you know, kind of when I when I saw it needed to be, and you know, I wrote stories, for instance, about the chairman of uh, the New York Fed trading Goldman Sachs stocks while Goldman Sachs was being bailed out by the New York Fed. And by the way, the chairman of the New York Fed at the time was a former Goldman Sachs executive. We wrote that story, and he lost his um, he lost his job within a week, uh, but. So where does this Fed whisperer thing come to come from? Well, you know, this comes back to the kind of explain, explaining a complicated world and getting scoops. Um, we're the Wall Street Journal. The markets care very deeply about what our audience, uh, about what that audience, about the Federal Reserve and the central banks and what that and that audience is very attuned to that. So, you know, if you work for The Washington Post, then you know, your audience cares a lot about what's going on in the White House. Uh, if you work for the New York Times, then, you know, I guess your audience cares a lot about kind of theater and Broadway and the arts. And so you're going to dedicate resources to making sure that you cover those things better than anyone else. The Journal dedicates resources to covering the Fed really well. So, you know, my current, my colleague right now, Nick Timrose, like he's... He's one of the best reporters I know. You know, when when you're asleep at two o'clock in the morning, like I know this. I mean, because Nick is a friend of mine. Like Nick is up worrying that you know, like that that some Fed governor is gonna like kind of leave his job, and then who are the three other replacements who are being considered? And you know, God forbid somebody else gets that story and he doesn't. Like Nick is working at that stuff all the time. My predecessor, uh, Greg Ip, who covered the Fed, uh, is like the smartest guy I know. Uh, You know, he can kind of describe and explain economics in in ways that are kind of more insightful and more elegant than like most PhD economists that that I know. So, you know, the journal has has just always tried yeah, we made it a priority to cover that institution well. Now, 
in terms of myself, I became a Fed reporter by accident. So um, Greg, my predecessor, left the journal in the, in, in the summer of 2008. Uh, he, he uh, for whatever his reasons were, he went to The Economist magazine. And my um, his editor, uh, David Wessel, who used to cover the Fed, who was probably the best connected economics reporter still in Washington, um, he went off to write a book about the Fed. So, like, the journal needed somebody quickly to, you know, get on that beat. And it just so happens I was editing our coverage of credit markets at the time. And so I understood what was going on in these markets that were collapsing and breaking up. And so they asked me to come down to Washington to cover the Fed. Um, by the way, I was the second choice. We had a much more uh, gifted uh, colleague in London who couldn't move. Um, so I, they asked me to move down to D.C. And I, and I was like, yeah, like, I sure, I want to be in the front row of this kind of historic moment. And uh, I moved down to D.C. My first week on the job was the week that Lehman Brothers blew up. Uh, and, um, yeah, I, I spent several years uh, just kind of working my tail off in, at an amazing moment in history. And I knew that I had an institution, the Wall Street Journal, behind me that um, cared deeply about getting those stories first and getting them right. So, you know, so how do we get the reputation of a whisperer? Well, you know, there are a lot of sources out there uh, who, 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 who know we're working at this job and um, want to talk to us and tell us their side of the story. And, um, and we, we use that leverage that we have to... Um, to get as deep into it as we can. Yeah. Well, John, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like I've learned a lot. I took a lot of notes too, and just a lot of, um, uh, you know, great takeaways. I want to pass it back to you just really quickly. Um, I don't know if you want to share where folks can find you on social media. I don't, I don't think you're on Twitter. I looked for you. I didn't find you on Twitter, no. um, but if, if there's anywhere they can find you, um, or, you know, pick up your book, if you want to, or just any parting words well, that you might have. I mean, I would love it if your viewers picked up the book, you could find it on um, the HarperCollins website, on Amazon, uh, on all kinds of bookseller websites. Um, it's called Yellen. Uh, pretty easy name to remember. And so uh, I would welcome that. You're right. I'm, I'm not on Twitter. Uh, my feeling has always been that I'd rather write stories that other people tweet about than tweet about other people's stories. Um, uh uh, so I, I, I mean, my main thing I do on social media is on LinkedIn. So, you know, I kind of welcome your connection on LinkedIn. I'm kind of posting stuff there uh, uh, a lot more regularly than, than I used to. And, um, you know, look out, look out for my stories. I always felt like kind of your stories as a journalist should do the talking um, for you. I love so, it. And, and I just want to say, I really appreciate you getting, uh, giving me this chance to talk to you. I followed your work all the way back to Business Insider and uh, always admired your work and uh, love this chance to, to connect. Thank, thank to you your, so much. To your audience. Thank you. I've 
honestly, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Just, I feel like, again, I learned a lot from you. I've been enjoying your book as well. Um, John Hilsenrath, senior writer at the Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, Everyone Go Pick Up a Copy, Yellen, the Trailblazing Economist Who Navigated an Era of Upheaval. John, I thank you so much for your time and just being so thank generous. You. Thank you. Thanks so much. That was great.